This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. The Climate Farmers community is the place to be if you're working towards regenerating your farmland and business and want to learn from other farmers who are on a similar journey. Now, Europe is a very diverse continent with significant differences in biomes, landscapes, climates, cultures, languages, and contexts. So rather than looking further abroad for solutions, connect with others who found solutions to the challenges that are unique to us here. We have a central community chat on WhatsApp where you can ask questions, share your own observations, and simply chat with others who don't think you're crazy. We also organize regular skill exchange calls where experienced farmers share their knowledge and answer listener questions. Increasingly, we're even bringing the community offline by organizing gatherings at farms all around Europe. So if you're actively farming anywhere in Europe, you can join for free today through the website at climatefarmers.org under the For Farmers tab and click on Join the Community. And there's also a direct link through the show notes for this episode. I look forward to seeing you there. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So since the three-part series that Nick and I recorded about the vast array of drought mitigation and recovery solutions for people living in different situations, we've gotten a lot of follow-up questions from listeners who want to go deeper into this subject. Luckily, one of my friends and mentors who's had an outside influence on my educational journey and inspiration to work with farmers and land managers in helping to make the most of their water resources has just come out with a new book. Many of you know Mark Shepard for his seminal book, Restoration Agriculture, and I've also had him on this show in the past to talk about his previous book, Water for Every Farm. Most recently, I spoke about Mark a lot with Jake Takif when he and I went to design and install a water retention landscape in Nicaragua as representatives of Mark's company, Restoration Agriculture Design. Now that brings us up to this point where Mark has just released the field manual to accompany the book Water for Every Farm, which is intended to assist any designer or practitioner with the engineering specifications for various water retention features and earthworks. These will not only help to ensure proper due diligence, but also to navigate the jargon and the regulations, specifically in the USA, that the USDA and the Army Corps of Engineers uses in order to better communicate and perhaps even find support from those entities. In this chat, Mark and I explore the details of his masterline system and how it can be adapted to the needs of modern farmers at any scale. We also explore the flexibility of the design system to be relevant for diverse and complex topographies. Now for me, it was also important to explore the topic of long-term maintenance for earthworks and water retention features, since so much emphasis is often put on the design and the installation, and then, due to poor maintenance planning, the project can quickly be degraded or even fall apart. So of course, with getting to talk with someone with over 30 years of experience, this is an essential aspect to consider and explore. So with all of that out of the way, let's hand things over once again to Mark Shepard. So welcome back, Mark. It's good to have you on the show again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. How are you doing? Hey, good to be here, I suppose. <laughs> well, it's, I've already spent uh, like two and a half hours under a tractor in a puddle of hydraulic fluid this morning. And so uh, then I had to zip the to town and to get back here before this started. So I still smell like hydraulics. But good for my complexion i think you know oh well done <laughs> are things on the farm at the moment you must just be coming out of the deep winter as i remember from that part of the u.s there's a few more uh like on north facing slopes there's a couple of you know leftover drifts that haven't completely melted yet but the temperatures just turned two days ago 
and they went from like that. I don't know if you get it in your part of Spain, but that nasty kind of spring weather where it's below freezing at night a little bit and then above freezing. And it's just, you know, blah, everything turns to mud as the ground frost and the ground thaws. And um, they have uh, weight restrictions on all the, the smaller county roads, you know, because most of them around oh. here are gravel roads. And you just try driving around and it's like up to your axles and mud kind of whatever. It's, it's mostly cleared off now there. Yeah, we're fortunate we don't really have that here, but it has more to do with the fact that there's no clay in the soils around here, so nothing gets muddy. Otherwise, right. we would have gone through it about this time last month. Yeah. All right. And actually what's happening now is uh, in the past two days, uh, where where the was grazed heavy last uh, last year and or where I've mowed this spring, uh, the grass is coming through is turning green. So nice. I think today today would be the first day I'd say that, yeah, things look green. Nice. <laughs> That's always a good time of year. They're starting to look green, right? <laughs> cool. Well, look, before we get into this manual that you just finished publishing, I'd love to know a little bit more about how things have developed. I mean, you're going into about 30 years of development of New Forest Farm, and you have long since passed a stage that most people got to know a lot of your material from in the development of these perennial ecosystem-specific or bioregionally specific production systems and have long since been in maintenance and thinning and this later development stage of your farm. How has that affected the day-to-day -day operations on the place and what takes up most of your time now? <laughs> so um, everything that I do, so back back to the whole idea with restoration agriculture uh, is you mimic the plant community types of where you are. And around here, we're uh, in the, kind of the northern edges of the oak savanna um, vegetation type in North America. We're just south of the uh, like oak pine and then also south of northern hardwoods. So we've got, got like a crossover, a couple different kind of ecotypes here. And so what, what we do is we mimic the, the species, genus and species, uh, sometimes family level in that area. And then we pick out all the edibles. We pick out the tall trees, medium trees, short trees, vines, canes, et cetera, et cetera. And then we plant it. So what we've done is we've done ecosystem restoration heavy on the edible plants. Well, and then uh, what we're doing here and on most of the places where I'm working is we're doing them as uh, silvopasture systems. So they're open savanna, whether it's pine savanna, uh, you know, pine barrens is another word for that. Uh, so we have grass growing everywhere underneath and around all the trees. And then, of course, we incorporate the grazing animals in there for the mowing and nutrient cycling for basic fertility management, pest control, disease control with all the animals. So if you think about that, edible perennials and animals, 100% of them are currently edible right now by people or usable as feed for animals Everything is is for sale into mass markets is never going to be, although people may reduce the amount of red meat they're eating, people will still eat beef, people will still eat pork. And of course, the ultimate, um, the ultimate meat for people who eat meat is chicken. Everybody eats chicken. Not everybody eats beef, not everybody eats pork. But the three of those right there, that's that's the trifecta of of taking care of an ecological system. So we got to plant that system first. In early years, we needed to cash flow while the trees are developing. 
And so we were heavy into annual crops and my annual crops that I did, I started with, with corn and beans. I actually grew corn and beans once upon a time, then uh, did a proportion of all the annual fields as uh, organic produce. Um, part of the produce operation, I decided to put in two acres of asparagus, which anyone who is a market gardener farmer, I highly recommend putting in two acres of asparagus. Uh, it's the, it's the, most beautiful two acres on the property as far as like harvesting. And whenever I'm out there, it's the spring of the year, the grass is turning green, the bluebirds are back, the sounds, the smells are so incredible. And I'm, I'm have harvesting a yield starting in May, which is really great. So then as the years went by, I was able to do less and less uh, produce, you know, fewer vegetables. And then I filled in all those alleys with more trees and continue to graze underneath it until it was then three years ago that I stopped selling um, produce wholesale because I no longer had to. So the, not only has the site gone through ecological succession, uh, I've gone through human succession from being a 30-year-old to a 60-year-old. And then uh, the, the, um, the fields have changed once upon a time, all annual, you know, mostly annuals. Then now it's, uh, as of this year, it's, we're 100% perennialist. I, I don't have any annuals that were growing for sale at all. Um, so you spend you spend a lifetime transitioning th this thing through through successional time. Now, what makes it different is uh, <laughs> I knew that eventually I would get into cutting trees down because I planted so many. One of the uh, ideas that we also do is we want to make sure that we have the genetics that are suited for this place instead of doing the horticulture approach where we add things to help that plant grow the best that it possibly can. We find the plants that actually survive here and do well here as it is. Thank you very much without having to add all the stuff to it. So instead of adding a lot of inputs, we go extra heavy on planting the woody plants of perennials up front. So we have extra. Well, then we, uh, we remove ones that don't perform uh, as well as we would like. We, if they're large enough, we go ahead and we'll uh, inoculate uh, the wood with, with uh, mushroom spawn, or we'll chip it and inoculate the chips with mushroom spawn. Um, we have only burned a couple of times, but that's not to get rid of the woody debris. It was kind of like to do weed control in prairie areas. And so now mo most of my work is, is killing trees. I, yeah, killed a bunch of trees. <laughs> but and what it is, it's justifiable because I'm doing a finish mowing for the pastures. So I'm getting rid of all the broad leaves, all the thorny bushes, this, the, the other thing. And oh, and coincidentally, underproductive hazelnuts or underproductive chestnuts. So what's happened through time is our original population was a hodgepodge of genetics from all over the place. And then we started to select against the ones that uh, didn't produce regularly. We selected against the ones that got the Eastern filbert blight and hazelnuts in specific. That's a disease that affects hazelnuts. Um, select against, by selecting against, I mean chainsaw, you know, chainsaw and then a, a orchard mower to chip things up. <clears throat> so the, uh, the plants that got chipped were the least productive ones. It means that the ones that remain are more productive. They have, you know, they produce earlier, they produce larger nuts, more nuts, all that kind of stuff. And through time, um, it's uh, 
University of Wisconsin Extension has has basically measured uh, my nuts coming in for almost 15 years now. And um, in those 15 years, I've had a four millimeter increase in in nut size, average nut size. And if you look at a sphere, uh, it's a cubic relation. So we're the volume of that nut is is tripled, you know, just by growing that though, that four actually, I think it's like by 12, whatever that who does spherical math? You do, don't you? So anyways, a, you know, a small diameter increase that way is a huge volume increase uh, down the line. See, here I just, I write a technical manual and I'm trying to ask you questions on math. <laughs> so most of what I've been doing like for the past couple of weeks now, uh, because while it's, it was really cold here in February, um, I got, I was in Africa doing some trainings and site visits uh, and then when I got back here, it was maple season. The sugar maples are, are pushing sap. And so we, we put a, we drill a hole in the tree, hang a bucket on a spile and you collect all the sap and you boil it down. It's about 40 gallons of sap to one gallon of syrup. And, um, I do it old school with taps and buckets. I don't do hoses and pipelines or any of that. And then, uh, while that's happening, I'm going around before everything greens up and um removing down branches we had a lot of windstorms last fall that knocked a lot of trees over and we had uh an ice storm i think it was in january ish when it coated all the branches maybe a half inch thick in ice and just breaking branches all over the place well then it snowed about two feet on top of that and it all stuck to the ice and it oh i have so many trees down so i've been cutting wood and then chipping the branches as fast as I can um, since since then. And I've got about about a third of the way through the farm. And some people, they try to like pin me down on like how much time are you doing this and how much time are you doing that, how much time are you doing that? Because they want to like, you know, codify this, make it seem simple. But it it's not difficult, but it's complex and, it, and it's, it's customized problem solving based on the ecological stage of the place. Whatever event just happened to it, windstorms and ice and broken branches, I wasn't expecting that. So I have extra work that I didn't have you know, because of that. Um, getting ready for, for the cattle that are coming in, I've got new, I'm going to expand my, uh, my uh, watering system so I don't have to haul water on a trailer to the cattle anymore. That'll be kind of nice. Have I successfully avoided answering your question yet? <laughs> I think you did a really good job about this. <laughs> yeah, so so you know, I'm, I'm I'm mowing a lot of trees, cutting a lot of trees down right now. Actually, the hazelnuts are in full bloom, the catkins are elongated. There's pollen clouds all over the place, and and remember once again, this is the elite of the elite. And what we did this the last the last major coppice that we did was two years ago, and then. Um, one year ago we did a diameter limit so if you don't if you aren't this diameter or larger we cut you down and so what what i did this time uh because i'm uh i'm pretty confident in the technique i mean it works uh we've had good successful results in the past i decided to go ahead and increase the diameter limit uh 30 percent wow. and so there's there's maybe only a few thousand plants that have made that grade and so if, if you don't make that diameter cut, you don't pollinate. 
you're not in there. It's going to, so you're uh, a four or five on a scale of one to five on productivity, five being like, oh my God, and one being like, you don't even notice it. So only the fours and fives get to reproduce. And then the, um, the, uh, the diameter limit this time was 15 millimeter um, kernel size. Now that doesn't mean that every nut's going to come out that big. Cause you know, you don't look like your parents and your sister doesn't look like you and your et cetera, et cetera. With this variation between all these siblings, but the whole pop as a whole, the population is trending towards larger, uh, higher productivity and earlier productivity. I got a picture of a, it's a one-year-old plant. We put it in the ground last year. One-year-old it has three female flowers and four or five male catkins on it. One-year-old. That's called hyperprecocity, man. That's really impressive. And I'm so glad to get this perspective because there's so few people that we can speak to now who have seen this many years of succession in an ecosystem and can talk about how the tasks have changed, the observations are different. And there still seems to be this perspective, especially in permaculture farming now, that you plant a perennial system so that all of the work goes away and you can just sit back as it starts to mature and they're low maintenance systems and they're high production once they start to mature. But it really doesn't play out like that. As things go through different levels of succession, just the roles and the maintenance that's needed for it are going to evolve with it as well, based, you know, much like what you're talking about here. What are some of the things that maybe people should get out of their heads about these perceptions of, of planting and maintaining perennial systems? Well, actually, the biggest one is that it is never the same. Never. If you go, if you go online to different places, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, <laughs> attempting to explain things to people when they want to go online to the university site that has the enterprise budget that explains how chestnuts, apples, grapes, this and say, see, this enterprise budget says this. It's like, well, that assumes that you have stable weather, uh, a stable gene pool with, with stable pest and disease populations that are all manageable with different chemical inputs. And you just, it's a cookie cutter mechanistic approach that's not how this planet rolls my friend you know this 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 planet changes through time and when you plant your perennial system it's always going to be different so you're going to learn have to learn how to come into a relationship with that and to accept feedback uh from that system i'm going to stop the video because my signal is getting uh wonky and i don't want to lose it is that okay yeah that's fine all right um and so the system is always going to change and your roles were, will change. And what, what's interesting about it is if you now, uh, when you look at your farm, and I just did air quotes around the word farm, when you plant the system today, an agroforestry system is one that includes trees and you know crops and livestock. Um, if you start to think about that as just like a forester would, or a, you know, a natural resources manager for a large, you know, uh, parkland estate, whatever it is, think about your interactions with the land more as a ecosystem manager and as a, as a forester instead of as a farmer. Farmers and horticulturists spend way too much time doing way too many things that really aren't that necessary. 
and uh, we're not often those of us who who don't do those things aren't often uh, appreciated by all the PhDs that have to get their grants and they're this and that, the other thing, and they can't make a mistake when they're recommending anything. And, and farmers that are so anal that, that they have to believe that something is foolproof before they'll put it in the ground. I just felt, felt like I was rambling there, but (laughs) it's somewhat of a frustration of mine that uh, way too many people are doing way too much work and, and permaculturists are, are no exception either. Mm. But that, now this goes, but now back to the work, one of the ways that we can reduce the labor involved is one by not doing it as a horticulture or a, or a farming gardening uh, project, but as a natural uh, resource, if you look at a forester, they'll go in and they'll, they'll maybe plant the site, maybe give it three years worth of weed control and maybe uh, in 15 years or so they'll go and thin it out. And then in maybe 30, they'll have the first harvest and then 60, the second. So seven times in 30 years, they went to that site. Now, if you only go to your farm seven times in 30 years, that's really affordable on the labor side of things and on the time side of things. And when they go there, except for uh, planting an herbicide, they're getting a yield. So, I strive to make things so that whenever I go out and I do work, I'm getting some sort of yield. And even if all I'm doing is chipping hazelnuts, I'm now broadcasting ramial wood chips over the whole entire property. Um, and I can talk about that for eons if you want. Another reason yeah, to plant yeah. high density with the, with the, with the genetics, the high density is important with the genetics for one. It's because we just want to roll the genetic dice and find the variants that that work well on our site. Well, now we have this extra material that becomes a resource. Like I said, it's either it's either saw logs, uh, pole material, you know, for for building. It's firewood. It's mushroom substrate. And the the lowest use, which really isn't a low use, is it's fertilizer. Because you've had this tree growing for five, seven, 10, 15 years, however long it is. And the small diameter of wood has all of that cambium. And the like three years worth of wood uh, is where 90% of the nutrients are in a woody plant in that, in that past three years worth of production. So we're chipping a small diameter of wood that's been accumulating nutrients from levels way down below where your annual crop ever can go. It's brought it up. Yep, it deposits some as leaves and deciduous trees, but in those thin, narrow branches right there, that is that is a, a gold mine of, of fertilizer that you chip right on the site and let it decay right there. And yeah, it feeds the rest of your trees. It's fantastic how how potent of a source of nutrition and fungal food that that is for forest ecosystems, and how well that fits in within this successional maturity of a system that you designed from the very beginning and now are exploring all of the different potential yields, even as you get beyond the intended yields for market that the fruit or, you know, maybe diameter poles might have originally been designed for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the real reasons why I got into this when I did so long ago it's like, well, we human beings need to feed ourselves. And there's this false dichotomy out there is you can either have, you know, conservation, ecology, restoration, or food. 
And, you know, that that's a big pile of bull manure. Um, we can have both. Let's restore the ecosystem and harvest the food from it. Um, on the numbers side of things, part of what ends up happening is because we're not pushing the system with, with inputs and, and uh, you know, chemical fertilizers and whatnot. What we're doing is we're allowing it to develop on its own naturally and harvesting the yields, but our labor goes down so low because we're doing so few things. We have lower total yields per uh, species, um, but our, our net return in our pocket is more because our expenses are less. So if you, I'm gonna throw some stupid fuzzy math out there and I'm not, I'm not using calculator, but if I take, I plant, um, uh, if I get a thousand units of harvest, say a thousand bushels of apples, and it costs me, you know, six bucks per bushel is $600 or six, you know, whatever. So I get, I get $10,000 or a thousand dollars worth of, of fruit sales, but it costs me $600 of inputs and work and labor and time. I made $400 on that. Well, if I only got, <clears throat> um 600 units of yield and it only cost me 100 to take care of it i got more dollars in my pocket with lower yield and that's that's the whole approach that i've been taking is if if this is allowed to be a natural system we'll be doing the genetic work to steer it going to do the major corrective issues if a ice storm blows down you know 10 acres worth of wood or whatever it is and i'm going to make sure that these different nutrient cycling processes are in place from the grazing animals to the, you know, to the fungi, which I, of course, inoculate with edible fungi, lots of oyster mushrooms, shiitakes, and um, <clears throat> strafarias and wine caps and, uh, and lion's manes. All, all we're doing is we're managing the system by harvesting parts of it. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. And it does to me because I've been following your work for a long time and I'm a big fan of your first book, Restoration Agriculture. So much of what you've just talked about now is very well outlined in that volume. And yet you just came out with a new book, which is the manual, the technical manual, the engineering manual that accompanies the one that we talked about actually in our previous interview, which is water for any farm. And to start right. that focus off, let's go into why you decided to focus so much on water. I mean, everything we've just talked about now is designing whole ecosystems. Why would you zero in on just this one aspect? Well, uh, if you look at restoration agriculture, that's a broad outline of what I'm talking about. That's like my thesis. Let's imitate natural ecosystems, restore those natural ecosystems. And we have food and, and uh, as our byproduct is, is our farm economy. Well, step one is we have to uh, address water issues that our site might have. And I don't care where you live on this planet. Water is the absolute number one critical plant nutrient that's out there. You know, NPK fall away to a distant second and on that kind of stuff down the line, because without water, no amount of fertilizer in the world is going to help. You got to have that water. Every site on planet Earth has a certain amount of precipitation that either falls from the sky or is floating in the atmosphere that can be captured. And so it is our job to figure out how that falls, when it falls, 
how it interacts with the actual shape of the planet that we're on and the, and the types of soils that are there because of the types of the bedrock and the previous use patterns, et cetera. And the, the goal on my farm anyways, is that no water leaves on the surface as runoff. That if it falls from the sky, that was a gift from the universe to me. Uh, it's mine. Thank you very much. I'm going to use it for productivity. And so the whole farm, if you've seen a, you know, uh, aerial photograph of it there's all these little shapes all over the place those are the rows of trees that are that are planted in parallel with uh water management channels and you know i got started here uh way before the internet ever really was up and running and uh to find a book there was no such thing as amazon you know and to find a book that was a small out of print uh, Aust australian uh, manual on uh, managing runoff, uh, the key line design, P.A. Yeoman's book, um, Water for Every Farm. It took at least a year or so before I could finally locate one and then get one sent here from Australia. It was a, quite a lengthy process to do that. I tried to apply the key line design principles as written by Yeoman on this landscape. And I discovered that, lo and behold, the key line cultivation pattern and the uh, the statement that he makes that if, if you do this on every single property, it will work. It'll work perfectly. Well, and I was following his recipe step by step, and it didn't work. And I it baffled me for years and years and years as to why it didn't work. So I just modified the, the original um, key line cultivation pattern and discovered that these, these modifications that I did, oh, wow, they, they actually work pretty good. So the goals on this property here were to take water from high in a valley and spread it out towards the ridge and then have it sheet across the ridge instead of being a channel running down a valley. I'll uh, use a uh, example of a 40-acre parcel um, if you get one inch of rain on that 40 acre parcel, the ridge in, let's assume right now that there, there's no infiltration because it's, you know, coming out of a wet time of year or whatever. And in most agricultural areas, the precipitation happens in, in certain periods. And there are times when the soil is saturated and it just, it doesn't matter how porous your soil is, there is surface flow somehow. So if I have 40 acres of ground and I don't have infiltration with that water, the ridges didn't get a didn't get an inch of rain because that water didn't soak in. So what happened is that water flows down to the valley. Well, the valley doesn't get an inch of rain. The valley gets this inch inch of rain multiplied by the 40 acres that it collected on, and now you have a flash flood raging down the center of it. Well, what if we set up a system of channels, storage pools, uh, and arranged it across the, the landscape so that when that rain came down, it spread it out, discharged it in a sheet across the ridge. Uh, and what would that do to the hydrology? Well, I can attest to you that there were two years in a row here on the farm that, that uh, we basically had no rain in the summertime, really bad drought years. And... Uh, I actually cut and sold hay those years. 
because I had green grass. Nobody else did. So what happens when you have something that nobody else does and it's in high demand? The price was super, super high. So I actually, you know, cut and sold hay during a drought when everybody else couldn't cut hay because of the drought. And it just, I don't know about you, but it, you're not here in Wisconsin, but it just seems to me like it's fixing to want to be a dry one this year. And so we'll see. We'll see how it holds out this time because it's been, you know, 30 years of the water soaking in. I'm using a lot more of it because of a lot more biomass out there. Um, but we'll see. I haven't had an overland flow. The last overland flow I had was like two years ago and I chased it upstream and I found a, a breach in in one of the um, swales that I drive over the top of and it was my tire track. It had just packed it down just enough and when that was full of water and water was flowing to the ridge, it poured out. So why did I get into the water and focus on the water is because that's step one. Step one is manage your water. And when I talk with Fred Walters, who is the... Um, editor of uh, Acres, the owner of Acres USA at that time. He said, Mark, this is too big of a book. We'll never be able to sell it. Split it into two parts. Split it into the narrative with lots of pictures. And so people can just read it and, and understand it. Well, then take all this math crap out of there and put that in the technical manual because the people who make it through the blue book, the uh, water for any farm, and they, they understand what you're talking about, now they'll want to go in and dial it in and and uh, do it more precisely, more accurately. And one of the one of the the, the keys with with the engineering field manual is that it is uh, everything that we do in our what we call our master line systems is compliant with the USDA codes for terraces, contour farming, uh, contour orchards grassy waterways, et cetera, et cetera. We use, we use all the same terminology. So what I had to do is I had to, I had to marry Army Corps of Engineers, USDA, stormwater runoff, uh, and permaculture language to be able to talk about the same things because uh, permies talk about swales and berms. So USDA talks about terraces and, um, and so on. It So <laughs> I did it again. <laughs> it's just too much fun talking with you. That's why. That's really what it is. Look, yeah. <laughs> so then, so this bringing in all of the the jargon essentially from these different sectors of work and allowing them to communicate with one another is where I see so much value in this. I mean, you know, who did you really have in mind when you were writing this? Because, like you said, the narrative from the first book was a way of talking about this in a way that the patterns were clearly communicated the visual aspects were you know a good assistance to seeing how this might work uh if, if that's what helps you to learn it but this is very technical as we get into the manual here you know who did you have in mind when you were when you were writing this out basically anybody who would have picked up uh water for any farm read through it or you know read part of it and got pissed off at me or whatever the reasons and say, Hey, look, wait a minute. If you think that these technologies don't work for capturing the water, spreading it out, you know, discharging it safely, soaking it in, well, then you're not paying attention to reality for one. Uh, and two, you may have actually had some experience and you may have had some experience with um, poor results. 
And that may be because you were doing it wrong. Not that, not that you were trying, you're trying to do it right. But when you're talking about three, three feet of rain in an annual, you know, annual rainfall cycle here in, in this part of Wisconsin, 36 inches, uh, basically a meter, a meter of rain falling on a piece of property that has a certain porosity, the land will react to that water striking the surface and the shape of the land causes the water to move. All of those are facts. They're observable and they're measurable and they have nothing to do with your opinion. So this has to be, I had to put out the technical part of it because if you're going to do this, do it right. You know, don't, don't set up a system that, uh, that has issues with it and then blame the system for not working. Well, we're doing farm scale civil engineering that is uh, simple enough that a farmer who can read and use equipment can do it, can do it well, can do it safely, uh, can do it correctly. So that's part of what this was about was for the people who wanted to do the do-it-yourselfers the naysayers, um, and then I also did it as a as kind of a a bridge with USDA because there are um, that's the U.S. Department of Agriculture for um, non-American speaks. Um, there are actually <laughs> rules and or uh, programs within the USDA where they are supposed to help and support farmers. And that includes funding for those people who like to beg for government funds for doing these practices. But uh, let's just take a classic, I'll do a stereotype, this starry eyed young California hippie with long hair and bare feet goes prancing into the USDA office. Hey, we wanna put in some soils and berms cause they're good. Um, the USDA guy's not gonna pay any attention to you. You know, you're not a real farmer. You're not using the right language. So we, we at least need to speak about the same structures with a common language. And, you know, and right now there's this EPA, this Army Corps of Engineers, there's the states, there's the counties, there's USDA, there's Forest Service. Um, and then some places where there's water rights states, there's water commissions, there's seven different layers of regulation that regulate what happens when the rain falls from the sky and strikes agricultural land we have to we have to figure out how to talk about water water management landscape hydration um in in a civil manner and and actually solve some major problems in case you haven't like looked at the news and stuff like that the numbers of flash floods the intensity of flash floods is increasing if you've been uh, under a rock, maybe you didn't realize that California has had like record rainfalls and record snowfalls over this past winter, massive landslides. And what happened to the majority of that water? As it melts, it goes out to sea. <clears throat> and here you are in a desert environment, taking water from all over the place and moving it. We need to manage that water. When it was here, if the land was shaped to receive it, we would have received it. Got several projects in, in California that are doing quite well. Thank you very much. Um, so we, we, yeah, we 
need to have a, a coherent approach to flooding uh, issues that were caused by our land management. I was just in, in Malawi a month ago, and there was a, they call them a cyclone, so it was a hurricane. It was the longest lived hurricane yet in, in recorded history. It came to shore and basically flooded the entire country under three feet of water or so uh, for like 10 days. And then it turned away. It went back out to sea over Madagascar, built up strength again, and it came back in and hit a second time. And Malawi is one of the most food insecure places on the planet. They have decent enough soil. Almost everybody is a subsistence farmer, but they're trying to grow annual crops in a blazing tropical sun with three months worth of rain and then nine months worth of, you know, no rain whatsoever. And that, that calls for water management. Calls for water management. No, definitely the situation is getting more dire all the time. Here in Spain, we're coming off of, uh, well, the hottest summer on record and droughts that came along with that. A very dry spring as we're in so far and water restrictions in the city of Barcelona started back in March. We're not even getting wow. into the summer yet. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this looks different in different places. Like you said, in some places it can even actually result in a higher average annual rainfall over time, but that these are becoming more condensed, more violent, more um, spread out events. And all of this indicates a need for better water management in order to help to, well, distribute it more evenly and make it available to crops or, or even to humans further out into these dry spells, which are increasing. Now, what I'm interested in, in understanding is since you've traveled so much and have been involved with designing and installing these systems in a wide range of places, what are, well, maybe give me a sense of the scope, the, the range of applications that this master line system can be applicable for and where you've seen it work you know, uniquely well in some of these systems that you've helped to design? Well, uh, <laughs> anywhere that I've gone, when the land managers have chosen to go ahead and install a system, it's functioned according to how it's designed and built. And if, if you want to, and it's the blue book, Water for Any Farm, the, the narrative version there, there's like one landform and it has something like 20 different examples of the way, way that you could do it following the, the simple protocol. And you can move everything to one side, fill a pond. You can spread it out like I choose to do it at my place. You can cascade, zigzag back and forth across the landscape. The, uh, the ways to unfold it are, are almost limitless. Um, <laughs> and it would take us into math again, and it's too early in the morning for me. And it's too late <laughs> in the afternoon for you. So we'll leave that out, out of it. <laughs> so I've, I've seen them work in, in all circumstances. I haven't, I haven't done a lot of really steep uh, land like Machu Picchu type terraces. And there's actually places where it's not appropriate, uh, you know, geologically to site any kind of uh, water retention system. And I'll, I'll uh, use an example. There's a, a particular valley in Ventura County, California, all of the bedrock tilts in one direction. It's a metamorphic bedrock. So it has flat plains that all tilt left. Well, if, if you, uh, built 
terraces and soaked water in on the sharp edge of the plates as they're facing you, it sticks pretty good. But if you collect water over the bedrock that's shaped like the flat irons in Colorado, you fill that full of water, you now put all that extra weight on it, it just slips right off the right off the bedrock. And there were there were um you know thousands of acres of, of California avocado orchards just slid right off the mountain because that soil got saturated. Places like that where you're the orientation of your bedrock is critical because you in in the types of soils that you have, there's different uh, types of clays that you say, oh great, this clay will hold it really well. I'll you know make a pond. Well, certain kinds of clays, really alkaline clays, dispersive clays, they will they will actually fizz like Alka-Seltzer and dissolve and just disappear if you put water into it. So <laughs> this is kind of another reason why I wrote the the second book as well. Both of the books combined are like a whole. Everything that we do with water is site specific and has a lot to do with everything. And so you need to approach these intelligently. Don't just go willy nilly, you know, putting Sepholz or gigantic, you know, Google culture, swale mounds all over the place because you could cause an avocado orchard to slide off the side of the mountain. Yeah, it's really could, important to bring this up because, like you said, there are risks associated with this, especially when you get onto larger pieces of land, when you start talking about the volume of water that you could potentially be dealing with and the kinetic energy and the destructive force that it could wield if directed poorly. Having access to these safety measures, these conditions that will keep you within a threshold that you can work within without having to worry too much, is essential and that's why a manual like this to have with you when you're going out and observing a system looking at the potential is so crucial and like you said you know some of these risks are are catastrophic if they were to come about but there's also quite a bit of maintenance and foresight that comes with designing these systems too can you talk about some things to have in mind when you put in terrace systems or ponds or level spillways what should you have in mind about the maintenance that it's going to take over time and the observations that you should be making regularly to make sure that you're not moving into a dangerous uh maybe potential failure of a of an application yeah well actually um the the failure in the in the you know catastrophic potential that that we've talked about that's actually because of not having a technical manual like this hmm. is doing something where it's inappropriate. There, there's, and, and you have to have it sized properly for the site conditions, for the steepness of the slope, for the types of the soils, for the vegetation cover that's going to be on it. So that's another thing is if, if you're following the directions in the, in the uh, engineering field manual, you are compliant with USDA um, codes on terraces alley widths, et cetera, uh, you have a certain degree of knowledge that USDA is not going to come after you for, you know, eroding a mountainside. If, if the system fails, um, it's because it was an extreme heavy event, uh, or the system was new, et cetera, et cetera. So this is also a little bit of a sense of security for the do-it-yourselfer. Say, look, I did it right. I did it according to code. Um, it should perform fairly well and yes now it requires a little bit of maintenance some of the 
uh, most common maintenance, especially in the early years, uh, is to remove sediment from in the, the terrace channel and from the swale itself. And um, especially if you're going to be growing annual crops in the alleys between um, swales, between terraces, because if, if you're doing any kind of tillage agriculture, you're going to get some sediment. And even with, um, with uh, pasture in your alleys, if you're just grazing animals or harvesting hay, whenever a raindrop strikes bare soil, it could have gone all the way between all these different blades of grass. Poof, it splashes on the soil. It's now uh, agitated it and the tiniest particles go into suspension in that water. And as that water moves in a sheet, doesn't even have to move in a, in a trickle yet. It's not even in a stream. As it moves in a sheet, all those tiny fines, the, which are the clay particles, uh, they all go down and they fill up your, the, the channel, the swale channel, any kind of uh, pocket ponds or you know, pools that you have here and there. So what will want to happen is uh, for every year, go around and check. How much sediment do I have in the bottom of the channel? Do I need to clean it out? Are my, are my pocket ponds filling up with sediment? Do they need to be cleaned out? Part of what will also happen in the, in the, you know, the pools and ponds is that uh, vegetation will come in, wetland vegetation will come in, and they'll grow and start to die. And it's called, the process is called eutrophication. That pond gradually gets shallower and shallower and shallower. Well, what happens is now your storage volume is less. And uh, in, in the book here, there's, there's uh, quite a bit of time is spent on the amount of rain that comes down, amount of runoff that is generated, uh, and then how much storage volume do you need in that channel and in all the various different pocket ponds along the way in order for this to not be a catastrophic uh, failure should it fail. And to take away... Uh, one of our targets is we try to we try to remove at least 25 percent of a of a 25 year storm event. The USDA has what they call a um, design storm event, which is the it's a 10 year uh, rain event over a 24 hour period. So we we target. Uh, a 25-year storm event, which is a bigger storm event. So we make much larger systems. And then we intend to capture 25% of that in the volume of the channel, the ponds associated with it. Then that gets discharged across the hillside. If you don't have any terraces on your farm and your soil is saturated and you get a 10-year storm event, it all runs off. You're going to have erosion in, in your valleys. Um, you're going to lose topsoil, et cetera. So Back to maintenance, clean out the channels uh, annually, look for uh, like uh, rodent holes, <laughs> digging through. There's a lot of tunneling on that. Um, don't let trees grow on the berm uh, if you intend it to hold water. Uh, some places where there was a, a system we put in, it's extremely level ground on a 160 acre parcel it only dropped um, 14 inches, I believe, in a, in a half mile. Wow. That's, a, that's you know, not a lot of drop. I think it was 14 inches over a half mile. Anyways, it was um, blue clay. And so you take a shovel, you dig in the ground, and there's water like six inches down. That was actually lake level 
but the lake was like a mile and a half away. Oh, wow. And so what we did is we dug the channels and made a berm not to get water to soak in spread out because if there's plenty of water and it's not going anywhere, it's not going to soak in. We did the channels in the, in the mounds in order to have dry land to plant trees on. That's basically the, uh, the essence of what's going on in like the Netherlands and other polders that are, yeah. that are below water table is it, you, know, you just have just enough dry on top of that wet in order for it to, to survive. Fascinating. Other yeah, maintenance. Other maintenance. You want. You want. Look. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, like, yeah, there's so many different ways that this can look based on the context and the conditions on site, and that's why it's so important. Even if you have the design concepts well understood in your mind, to make sure that you're out there observing and reacting to what you find on the place before you start making decisions and get in there with machinery. Right. Yeah, and and then when you do, then you do it right, and then you maintain the system. That's. <laughs> So yeah. when, when we do installations, um, I don't know if the listeners were aware. Yeah, the listeners should be aware of this because they heard you do podcasts from it. Is uh, We had Oliver join one of our designers, Jake, on a project in Nicaragua. Um, so what happens when a client does a new installation is they've got 24-7 right and authority to call their designer and say, help, oh my gosh. Well, there was uh, one system that was put in place uh, and heavy, heavy rains came. And there was a, a place where the, uh, the check dams channel blocks that go across the swale channel so then the water can stair step its way as it's moving uh, in one direction. They were too high. And so during this extreme rain event, the water was coming up above ground level and it was saturating the berm itself and the berm was turning to jello and it was about to just go blah and all flow away. Mm. So there was like four five, six people standing around filming it going, help, 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 help. It's like, lower those channels, dig this out over here. And they just watched as it failed. So one of the things that we need to do is have an understanding of the system, how it works and how to respond if we have a newly established system, it's not being held in place by good, vigorous grassroots. We need to be able to, to breach that at the appropriate location should we have a catastrophic rainfall event because you don't want to like turn your, your ah, there's somebody walking in the background, just like you said. You don't want to turn your, um, your berm into mud and have it slump away because that might be your last bit of soil that you really have available to, to use for, for construction. So the, uh, the the maintenance maintenance needs to be live action, ongoing, and you have to understand how the system works uh, in order for it to to function well. So you can have this relationship with it and the ecosystem that you're setting up. An another tool that I actually uh, like, and you know, as I've gone through the years um, using it, is a uh, subsoiler, a yeoman's plow, deep tine ripper, whatever you mole plow, whatever they call it, wherever you are, basically a hook that you drag in the ground. Especially in the early years, uh, you get in there and you drag the hook and it, it will break up any hard pan, it'll lift and shatter. If you got any clay, like my place in the early years, all it really did was cut a slot in the clay. Um, but what happens is water now, a significant portion of water goes down into that slot. It goes into the cracks on either side of the slot that was shattered. 
Um, and as it soaks in slowly, it draws air behind it. It makes a soft channel where roots can more readily penetrate, you know, and most, most specifically, um, you know, grassy roots. So the use of a subsoiler can uh, dramatically increase the amount of water that's, that's physically stored in the, in the void that you've created by dragging this tool. And then it sets up the rapid soil development that converts subsoil into topsoil that will allow for more infiltration in the future. And I actually stopped regularly using a subsoiler on this farm Oh, maybe five, six years ago. So I, I went, you know, 20, 25 years, uh, started every season. I do it once a season. And then I went like every couple of three years. And after a while, I just dropped the subsoiler in and it's like putting your finger through toilet paper. I mean, it's, it was, uh, it's pretty easy to pull. And so since I'm not, I'm not in red clay anymore, I'm in topsoil. I'm in topsoil. Yeah. And I, we didn't, topsoil. we didn't add the topsoil entirely from the top we converted you know eroded clay subsoil we converted it into topsoil yeah it's really powerful uh what the biology of a site can do when you help to remove barriers and allow it to express its full potential in the short years like you're talking about you know sometimes it's it's calculated small interventions that can really cause a breakthrough within the ecology. And from there it starts to snowball and it takes over on its own steam. It, it's amazing. The, the wildlife diversity here is just totally amazing. Um, there's uh, once again, this spring, mama badger hatched a couple of babies. There's two of them. And you can see it, you know, back when there was snow, I could see their footprints running around and they're, they're busy digging up ground squirrels and chipmunks and, um, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot fewer snakes around um, than there used to be a long time ago, and I think that's mostly because of uh, pigs, because pigs will hunt and eat snakes. And at first, I only did like a pig or two for for family use, and then I started raising pigs to sell to others. And as the habitat developed better here on the site, we had more food for pigs. Um, and so the pigs have had a pretty good free reign and I think they've done a pretty good job of cleaning up the snakes, which is too bad because they used to have these really big, like six, seven foot long king snakes, you know, these constrictor type snakes, which are really, really neat. And there is one that I'm still scratching my chin about. Um, it's a good sign because it means I'm doing some kind of habitat restoration. This used to be a cornfield, you know, 27 years ago, this was, this is corn and beans. Um, we have a population of Massasauga rattlesnakes, which are a, a endangered subspecies of rattlesnake here in Wisconsin. It's like, well, do I really want to have prime habitat for poisonous snakes? Nothing I can really do about it. This is this is their home. This is where they used to be. And twice last summer, you know, it stepped on one and. There it is. It's like there's this rattlesnake looking right at you. It's like, oh my gosh. And that that that's some of the things that I think about. Because you know, I started with cornfields and I've done this transition. Now I see what a mature ecosystem has. I'm starting to see what were the issues that our great great grandparents who first like moved out here dealt with. Um and one of the things that uh I really am not all that excited about is mountain lions. 
because it's the large cats that are the only predator out there on the planet that actually made a habit of hunting and eating human beings as food. And I just don't want to have a mountain lion drop out of a tree and bite me neck. It's not, uh, <laughs> not my thing. So there's going to be issues that we run into. If if you have honeybees, there's, there's this guy that I was working with. He had, you know, maybe 50 or 100 honeybees and he's his system starts to mature. It's it's a really nice restored ecosystem um, farm. All well, the bears now show up. So how do you deal with bears? See, this is and a that's really valid why... question because I think a lot of people don't consider this when they go into full ecosystem restoration mode and play it out along its succession. It's like your reference to what the health of the ecosystem could be might have nothing to do with what it's capable of achieving because you've just never experienced or have reference to it within your lifespan or the lifespan of your own ancestors. But, you know, how do you think about this in terms of apex predators, which are an absolutely essential part of a healthy and intact ecosystem? I love the question that you just asked because it's like this big unanswerable you know, if if we if we really treasure these creatures, and I do, I really do, yeah. they have to have a place to go. So that's why uh, I think that the there needs to be more of a mix. Who was it? Is it might even be the U.S. federal government that's talking about who's promoting like the thirty percent of the country and in, in quote unquote conservation or preservation. I'm not sure. I don't think I, that... Like I had a similar conversation with Jake when I was out in Nicaragua yeah. because they're working to reintroduce wolves in his area, and he's really against the idea for a lot of you know personal safety reasons and the fact that he raises cattle out on the range, and you know this is a nuanced and tricky thing because it, it really has to do with people's safety, with the enterprises that they live off of, and yet there's still an understanding that there needs to be a place for them somewhere. We can't just eradicate them. And it's it's a bit different for everybody. And and part of what uh, you know, some of the work that I'm doing in Africa is is exactly with this issue, the human wildlife interactions. It's more uh, geared towards um, primates, the large primates. Yeah. And um, human populations have been expanding. So they encroach on the primate habitat Well, the primate populations because they're now uh, uh, protected in in preserve areas their populations are doing okay and they're starting to expand well then they come out into your garden and they steal your food and in the case of chimpanzees uh, chimpanzees actually are every bit as violent as human beings and they will come out and they will they will steal children and eat them and so that's an issue because the people (laughs) want to protect themselves they kill the chimps so the chimps you know just trying to feed themselves they go eat whatever they want to eat. So what we're doing is we're, we're uh, working with all kinds of nonprofits, mostly schools to put um, a buffer around wild areas. That's hostile habitat to chimpanzees. They don't like um, like shrubby areas where they really can't climb a tree to escape. So no tall trees in these areas and something shrubby, but something shrubby that the people who used to, farm and garden there can get some income from Mm -hmm. uh, and sell that but it's not going to provide food to the chimpanzees and it's been since uh 2015 working with goodall institute on that they've done proof of concept in several different places 
And so we're working more and more to do that, that buffer zone uh, idea. And then at the same time, we go into the schools and we're helping to, uh, you know, do a restoration agriculture, permaculture, food production systems with where you have multiple layers of food producing perennials and annual crops and alleys. And you, the target is to have, uh, you know, fresh, healthy, nutritious food 12 months out of the year instead of maize and one big heavy slug with malnutrition and all that goes along with that. So I see with apex predators, something similar here, there's gotta be core areas where they can hang out and have free range, but there also has to be the ability for people with a certain livelihood to, you know, to, to continue to earn that livelihood. And yeah, what if grizzly bears, grizzly bears start walking down the, the uh, Rocky mountains again and start eating cattle. That's part of what they do. Yep. And I don't, I don't, I don't know as we've um, solved that issue. Maybe we just need to make the grizzly bear core areas larger. So one of the strategies that we're, we're taking with, you know, the uh, restoration agriculture approach is we're working with uh, other nonprofits, nature conservancy type organizations, identifying critical habitat areas, and then uh, encouraging investment in the agricultural real estate around those critical habitat areas, and then designing restoration agriculture ecosystems that act as like a connective corridor between critical habitat areas. And that that's the, the same approach that we've taken with the uh, chimpanzees in Africa is that these isolated populations in these different preserves, they were never isolated before. They had the ability to migrate back and forth and interbreed um, because what we don't want to have happen is have too much uh, inbreeding depression or, you know, uh, loss of important traits that were in that, in that uh, population that might be helpful, useful through time. So if we have these, critical habitat areas, connect them with restoration ag farms. Um, at least that will provide some habitat for them. And then if you're going to go to an area that has a lot of restoration ag farms and you're near these critical habitat areas, you're going in with your eyes wide open. You know that you're going to go in and you're going to start farming next to a grizzly bear habitat. Uh, and, and you're just going to understand that maybe I won't do cattle. Maybe I'll do pigs because I've lost very few pigs to predators. I've lost cattle to predators. Um, forget it, sheep, just forget sheep. Just <laughs> put them somewhere like New Zealand or whatever. They're just bait. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now you got uh, me with really a pig. You know, like you said, this is a really complex dynamic. I'm gonna catch bears with a in a patchwork quilt sort of configuration where there's appropriate zones for the apex predators that need to exist and the impact that is necessary for them to create uh, these dynamic ecosystems that we're probably not ever going to be adequately capable of managing, you know, as, as hunters or in, in mimicking some of their behavior and yet buffers and safe areas to allow for the security and the cultivation that's required to provide food and healthy living spaces for the people there as well. This is a really interesting challenge. Well, it is. And, and what I think is 
fascinating is that we're actually talking about that now and mm. around the world we got 50 right now is degraded agricultural land um 50 of the planet is in desperate need right now for emergency ecological restoration period mm. and the problems of predators populations getting out of hand we're talking that's 20 years down the line that that, yeah. that is we don't we don't have to address that right now we want to keep those populations alive <laughs> we got to do triage before we start doing some of the cosmetic work right i'm gonna i'm gonna take a bio break here so you can pause the recording i guess yeah yeah no worries yeah i've had two of these big huge mugs full of nice hot water so oh that's good stay hydrated <laughs> yeah 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 well, look, uh, I mean, I want to be respectful of your time. We don't have to go much long if you don't want. I'm just letting you talk because this is really interesting for me yeah. as well. I, I got a half hour. Oh, that's plenty. All right. Well, look, uh, you know, having talked about all of these different design considerations and realizing that it would be nice to get to the point where we're dealing with these apex predator issues and more mature right. ecosystem challenges, the fact is we still have mostly repair work to do at a very basic level. And you're constantly traveling, constantly teaching, designing, and helping others with this. What are the projects that still keep you interested and motivated? I mean, you've been doing this for so long. Where's this all? Where's all this energy coming from? <laughs> where's Where's all the energy come from? Well, it's uh, almost difficult to describe that without using language that might make some people uncomfortable. Um, and so whatever language you need to use in order to make this make sense to you, go ahead and use that language in your head and translate because my words may not say it. Uh, we human beings are here for a reason. And, uh, some of us don't realize that we have a reason for being here and a purpose. Uh, and some of us get either trapped into becoming slaves for a system that kind of sucks. Other people are just sheep and they follow along. Other people just don't know any better, but some people uh, actually spend a lot of time uh, in introspection, you know, study, prayer, meditation, and all of a sudden say, I know what I'm here for. I know what I'm here for. I see a need. There are, devastated ecosystems around the world there are people actually hungry around the world and people that are hungry oftentimes they could use a little help growing food and if we grow food a different way other than destroy the ecosystem plow up the ground let it wash away in the rain blow away in the wind and then when it becomes infertile uh get them hooked to chemical fertilizers pesticides fungicides that method worked for a while it is in failure around the world right now the chemical ag system is in failure right now and they're trying to rejuvenate interest in the whole techno approach to the world uh because of all everything is you know data and we'll control it all with data and robots they'll be doing our farming for us and uh you know good old-fashioned biology uh, that's been around for however long this planet has been around works it works incredibly well half the planet 
like 49% of the planet is degraded agricultural land. Look at UN studies on this. It's been presented year after year after year. And I'm going to possibly use a profanity. There's really not a single freaking government around the world that is actually trying to do anything of any absolute worth on the biological side to restore the ecosystems of this planet. And if uh, excess carbon in the atmosphere actually is a pollutant and it causes weather problems and human suffering, et cetera, et cetera, decreased yields, lower proteins in the food crops that we grow, well, then something needs to be done about that. And if they're not going to do anything about it, we are. And one of the things about degraded land, it is, it's not the best farmland. So why would you buy it for farming purposes? Why would you buy it for recreational purposes? It's probably ugly. It's probably eroded. Um, hardly anything grows on it anymore. That's usually the more affordable land. So you go buy a piece of crap, run out, played out uh, farm, or in the case, in uh, and uh, later on this month, I'll be going down to Kentucky working on uh, mine reclamation, strip mine reclamation. You know, great. Let's let's mine away all the coal and leave like toxic streams and the bare bones of the earth exposed and just walk away from it. Well, that land's cheap, 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 cheap. And the plants that lived in that area prior to, you know, European arrival will live in that area. And then all we have to do is some water management, get some basic biology going and replant the ecosystem and harvest the food from it. So, so the energy to do all this comes from the, the urgent need you know, the ecosystems of this planet need our help now. And, and not we don't have to just change the light bulbs and our carbon footprint goes down and the world's a better place. No, we have to actually have to get off the couch and, you know, start putting roots in the ground. Yeah, it's very interesting that we bring this up right now because I'm actually part of a accelerator program with a, a nonprofit here in Europe to evaluate a number of different startup applications to figure out their suitability for funding and assistance in order to kind of revitalize or bring technological so solutions to the to the ag sector. And I always thought that I was quite a strange choice to be on the board of evaluations for this, but I think I can bring a perspective of, much like you were talking about, it's not about the shiny new projects and technological fixes that are going to turn this around. I mean, best case scenario, these are Band-Aid solutions the gaping wounds in what is essentially a degraded culture when you consider that all cultures are based around how people in different parts of the world have sourced, cultivated, and cared for the food production systems and ecosystems where they live. And much like you mentioned too, it seems like everybody has these new ideas about how they're going to transform the ag space and yet no one talks about getting back to the basics that have been effective that have been proven that have been adaptable all across the world since human history started i'm not sure why because certainly there are business cases there are profitable ways of earning a living within these even if it's not directly producing a yield uh, but in many cases it is and it's certainly tied to a lot of the the techniques that are viable where have you found a way to enter into the discussion and get people excited about these core fundamental 
competencies like reading a landscape, understanding ecological cycles, uh, participating, pr primarily participating once again in the health of the ecosystems that sustain us. Right. Well, um, part of where I've I've kind of like settled in is that I don't have time to convince people who don't want to be convinced to change how they're doing things. There are so many people right now who want to do things a different way that we need to help them to do that. And so if there, if uh, folks who are doing things in a destructive manner, see a model that works better, perhaps they will adopt it. Um, it's not my job to go convince them to adopt it. My job is to help those who want to adopt these new techniques and methods and then have that succeed. Um, that, that's the approach that I've been taking. And one of the things that, you know, you had mentioned about the technology and, and the, the fascination with the, all the sparkly bells and whistles. Oh my gosh, it's a robot guided by AI. Well, you know what? Biology is AI. It's actual intelligence, and it's been here since the beginning of time. And human beings have been able to figure out how soil actually forms, how a, a piece of bare rock eventually can turn into, over a period of time, with all the biology involved, plants and animals and so on, um, turn into a nice, thick, fertile topsoil. We know how to do that, and that's the fundamental uh, place where we have to start is to, to help design the ecosystems that create the topsoil and create the fertility and then get to a point where it's a stable, uh, natural native fertility for that site. Um, and that's, that's, that is more powerful than any, any robot out there. It's withstood the test of time. Yeah. Well, look, this is probably a good place to start to wrap things up anyway, but how can people find the, the technical manual for water for any farm and what advice would you give to them armed with this resource now to get started <laughs> water, water on their sites? Um, it can be purchased at acresusa.com. That's the publisher. It's called water for any farm engineering field manual. And the uh, cover is, is basically a contour map. It's a brown it's no frills. There's none of this advanced praise, acknowledgement stuff. It's the technical manual. Here it is. Put it to use. Um, so that can be obtained through Acres USA. What were the other parts of your question? Well, is there any other, I guess, links or resources that you would like to direct listeners to so that they could get involved and get started actually working with the ecologies that they where they live? Well, of course, there's Restoration Agriculture Development. That's their design and install uh, company. And that's at restorationag.com. Um, the Tree and Shrub Nursery, our breeding tree and shrub nursery is forestag.com. It's the Forest Agriculture Nursery. That's for, at this time, North America only. Um, we're, we're opening up in other regions and we're... Um, in the process of scaling um, in various different climates and uh, regions. And we'll keep you posted on that later. And then for um, people who would be interested in uh, it's, it's pretty extensive. It's a 
an online course that was a series of webinars that I did a few years back. I think it's something like 72 webinars, hour and a half. Some of them go two hours. That is the ecology of restoration agriculture. It's called a land manager's guide uh, to restoration agriculture. And I think that's at restoringagriculture.com. Yeah. Uh, and it starts everything from, you know, basic plant succession, different, you know, bioregions, ecoregions. There's a number of case studies where uh, participants in the original course uh, did a, a, a workup, you know, project of their own particular place and say, well, this is how we would, you know, how we would uh, attempt to do it in Northern California, Southern you know, France or wherever the heck they were, South Carolina. Um, so those are different ways to learn more about what, what we're up to. And then one of the, one of the things that I hadn't gotten to yet when you got cut off um, is on the real estate side of things. If you go buy an old uh, strip mine or, or a farmed out eroded field, farm field, like I did here, it's less, it's a less, money to purchase that than if you bought a, a prime piece of real estate. There's other parts of the country around the world, actually, where there are places that are practically free because nobody knows how to figure out how to survive there, um, you know, economically. And so you get this real estate really, really cheap. Well, then you spend the next 10, 15 years doing your ecological restoration. And now it looks like a park 20 years later. And when you go to uh, sell that, it's worth way more money or you just refinance to go get another one. Or in the case of my situation, right, right here in, in Wisconsin with new forest farm is we're in the process of transitioning to a next generation. And, and it's not my kids. It's whoever it is that actually wants to farm this way. Um, we're putting the, uh, probably going to be putting the ownership of the property. It's currently now held as a limited partnership. It will probably be put into a um, uh, 501c3, a nonprofit organization that would own the real estate. And then all the different enterprises that exist here would, would exist on it. So the, the model that I've done that's worked for me for 30 years, and I work with others that, that it works really well, buy a degraded piece of property, upgrade the ecology, have the agriculture pay for itself and the agriculture pays for the, the restoration work and the design on the property. Um, the agriculture isn't expected to pay all the bills. It's just expected to pay for the upgrade of the real estate. The real estate is a long-term buy and hold proposition with no cash flow expected. Although some years there actually is one. Hmm. And so when, when you think about, a piece of land and all these different functions that need to occur on it, each function that occurs on it, like a tree and shrub nursery, that's a tree and shrub nursery business. But the farming, that's somebody's farming business. Uh, residential structure, well, that's that's a residential structure. That's somebody's rental real estate or a, a storefront, you know, country storefront. That's another enterprise. So there's what, four different, five different enterprises that I said right there. But yeah. the real estate was owned as a buy and hold long-term capital appreciation play. And it doesn't expect to participate in cash flow from the from the on-site ventures, which keeps the rent really low for all the people who live on. This is how I've this is how I've lived um for the past, you know, 27 years now, is that I don't own the real estate. 
and I rent really, 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 really cheap. I feel like we should do an entire episode just on the business configuration, the the interconnected enterprises that you've explored and the concept of kind of community level farming on a single piece of land, which you were kind enough to give me a quite a deep dive into was this two years back now at that climate farmers uh, conference in Germany, but that we've talked about a number of times since then, as we've explored different possible collaborations, like I did out in Nicaragua. And I think it would be a really valuable thing to go even deeper into maybe even doing a, a whole walkthrough or a webinar at some point, because it's a very interesting and I think incredibly relevant way of looking at starting a new farming venture here in modern times when the real estate venture itself is prohibitive for a lot of people to do, especially if they're younger, on limited finances or trying to do it by themselves and can potentially offer new solutions or opportunities that I don't think are being talked about nearly enough in the ag space right now. Right. I just want to, you know, make a, a little bit of a language adjustment is that right. the the term that the, the prices are prohibitive, that's a value judgment that's based on your worldview. That's not a factual statement. The, the fact is, here's 100 acres, 100 hectares. The cost is this. That's the fact that we look at. Now what we have to do is figure out how do we get that paid for? Yeah. Fair enough. That's because once you say prohibitive, well, geez, it's prohibitive. I can't afford it. And you don't even think that way anymore. Instead of saying, okay, this property is selling for a million euros. It's going to be 6,000 euros a month payments. How are we going to make those payments? Now you start thinking, how am I going to make those payments? Then you figure out, then you just design systems that whittle away at that. And you put the whole package together. And if, and if, if you had, like I mentioned earlier, each different function is a separate business entity. Then they're they're collaborative. They work together. the The nursery does well when the design and install company does well. The design and install company does well when there's the real estate acquisition company is doing well, and so they all help each other. And then the farm does well when it's selling seed to the nursery, and so on and so on. Yeah, exactly. And this is exactly what I would like to explore maybe on a full session at some point. You do have presentations on this in other places, and I, I think I linked to it on the last episode, but I'll make sure to include that here as well. There are really innovative opportunities in the ag space right now that I think many people are still very unaware of. And much like you've talked about in the past, this aversion to debt financing is one of the things that is preventing people from from some of these opportunities and there's just there's so much to explore here partly from your experience of setting up these multi integrated enterprises and the different configurations of businesses that you have have tested and tried and also that you have seen work in some of the many different places that you've traveled to and worked in so i mean maybe we should just put a bookmark in there for now but this is a, a fascinating place to explore next time and, and what I do want to mention right now, though, you know, the, the whole idea of this prohibitively expensive thing right now, uh, you know, the, the, the world is is poised and in the U.S. especially it's this is about to be the largest. We're in the process. It's like the beginning of the sixth extinction. You know, this is like the beginning of the biggest transfer of farmland in American history, period, as the baby boomer and older generations 
start leaving the scene. And currently right now, there are uh, probably tens of thousands of opportunities uh, for young people without resources to get into farming and make a go at it with little to zero outlay of cash at all because people just need somebody to keep the land farmed uh, so they can pay farmland taxes instead of the development taxes on that. It, it's all over the place. There's farmland that you can go in and, and start farming tomorrow. So that's a setup for the next. There we go. All right. We'll have to put that one on the books real soon. Mark, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I have been learning so much from the resources that you've been putting out and for the opportunity to collaborate on some of your projects. I really hope mm -hmm. that this will continue to blossom and that we can talk more about how the resources that I'm creating here on this farm can feed into the larger vision that you are creating with your collaborators. And and hope maybe by, maybe by the time we do that next um, uh, podcast presentation, however we're going to do that, maybe these other things that I'm working on will, will kind of fall into place more and I'll have a, a lot bigger, more exciting stuff to chat about. Oh, very exciting. All right. Well, that's something to look forward to. Again, thank you for your time, Mark. We'll be in touch real soon. You bet. All right. All right. Thanks once again to Mark. I've included all of the links to the resources that he's mentioned on the show notes under this episode on the website. So if you're serious about getting into large scale water management as a career, I would really encourage you to check out this new book. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.